Well, last week we were not in the book of Hebrews because of our study of missions, and I tried to remind us last week from the Word of God that we can be rich in the things of this world and poor toward the things of God. And that happens all the time, does it not? People who have got wealth, people who have got possessions, people who have got retirements, they've got toys, they've got uh, experiences, they've got all these different things in life that they've amassed, and, and they've got their barns full of everything this world has to offer. And yet when they die and stand before the Lord, they will be poor toward the things of God. It happens all the time, and I hope that in the last week we've thought about that and we've given some attention to it. But it was three weeks ago that I want us to think about what we first started looking at in Hebrews chapter 3. We watched as the writer began you know, explaining to the Jews and bringing to the attention of the Jews the man uh, that they all knew by the name of Moses. We know that God used Moses in an amazing way. And yet in all of that, what the writer wanted to point out was this, is that Moses was nothing more than a servant in the house of God. There was nothing special about him. There was nothing uh, superior in his life uh, over anything else or anyone else. Moses was just a servant. And what he said in verse number one is that we need to consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. And what that meant was this, is we need to fix our attention and we need to give our attention to Christ because he is not a servant. He was the son of the house of God. He was the one who deserves the worship and the praise and the glory and and all that many times people give to man and so we were reminded three weeks ago that we are to fix our attention and give our attention to christ jesus and then two weeks ago in verse number six as he said but christ as a, as a son over his own house whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end and what i tried to show us two weeks ago was this is that how you and I bring our lives to a conclusion, how our lives end, it matters. Because it says much about our testimony and our walk and our professed faith in Christ Jesus. It's not that we have to worry about losing our salvation. It's not that we have to worry about maintaining our salvation. It's not a, an if-then type thing, though the scripture would somewhat sound like that. But what he was saying is this, is that in our Christian life, this ought to be something that lasts us to the end. There is something wrong when a person's faith does not last as long as their life. When they begin to fade and they begin to fizzle and they begin to drop out and they, and, and they don't stay faithful to the end, there is something wrong with that. And in verse number 14, that same thought is you know, dealt with again. He says, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. You know, it's like the writer was of the mindset, you ought to live this thing until you take your last breath. And if somebody, you know, professes to be saved and yet they don't live it, and of course they don't live it to the end, that places a real cloud of doubt over their entire testimony. You and I are not the Holy Spirit. You and I are not God. We don't get to make declarations and we don't get to make judgments. Only God knows the heart. But for goodness sake, why would we look at someone who did not finish well? Why would we look at someone whose faith did not last to the end and stand and say with boldness and confidence, Ah, but they're a child of God. 
doesn't always measure up. And so that's what we talked about two weeks ago. Tonight we're going to move on, and we're going to be in verses 7 through 13, and we're going to go through this somewhat quickly. But I want to ask you something. How many of you have ever wondered something? We've all done it, haven't we? Even if we don't want to wonder, we wonder. Even if we don't mean to wonder, we wonder. There are so many things in which our mind begins to wonder and to think upon. I think if you've ever had family members in your immediate family who have been diagnosed with illness, diagnosed with disease, it's not that you're negative, it's not that you're pessimistic, it's not that you live in this world of a worst-case mentality uh, you know, all the time, but how many of us would have to say something like this, maybe in a situation kind of like that, you've wondered, is that going to happen to me? Am I going to get that diagnosis? Am I going to hear that same kind of news from the doctor? Is that what's going to take place in my life? It's not that, again, you're wanting to take your thoughts there. It's not that you mean for your thoughts to go there, but, but it happens. You find yourself just wondering about it. Maybe you've worked at a place and they're doing layoffs because things are slow, and, you know, you just start thinking to yourself, I wonder. I wonder if my job will be here next week. I wonder if my job will still be in place next month. You're not trying to worry about it, but you just find yourself wondering. We do it, don't we? I wonder about this. I wonder about this. I wonder about this. Now, this evening, as you think that or have that thought in the back of your mind, I want us to, to begin looking in verse number 7. And he says, Wherefore? And I don't know how the publishers of your Bible would have done this, but in my Bible, after the wherefore, there's a parenthesis. All right, so after wherefore, it says, As the Holy Ghost saith, Today if you will harden, or if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now, if you think about this, if you know as much as I do about grammar and things like that, which isn't a whole lot, here's what you know is, as though that, that uh, parenthesis that's kind of an interruption to thought. And that interruption ends when that parenthesis is found at the end of the interruption, okay? And so verse number 7 is actually going to pick up in verse number 12, and we'll jump to that in a couple of moments, but before we get to verse number 12, I want us to consider the interruption that takes place in the flow of thought, okay? So he says in verse number 7, As the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Now, what is the writer talking about? Well, we know that in the previous verses he was talking about Moses. The Jews, the people of Israel, would have known who Moses was. They would have known the history. They would have known about the bondage. They would have known about the deliverance. They would have known everything that took place in their day. Though they had never experienced the bondage, they would have been mindful and they would have been aware of what happened. And so whenever the writer began speaking in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, here's what the, the readers would have understood and here's what the readers knew, that the writer was talking about Israel's time in the wilderness where over and over and over they tempted and they provoked God. Because they certainly did so, did they not? 
All you've got to do is read through the Old Testament scriptures there from the book of Exodus until they finally reach the promised land. And over and over again, here is what the children of Israel did. They provoked the Lord to anger. They would stir him up. They would tempt him. They would test him. They, they would test his grace. They would test the limits of his mercy. In verse number 9, it says this, When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. Now, it's interesting. Here's what the writer reminds them of, is that over the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the people of Israel were, over, were able to see the works of God over those 40 years. Isn't that amazing to think about that for 40 years, these Israelites, they witnessed the hand of God, they witnessed the power of God, they witnessed the miracles of God, and yet in spite of everything they witnessed, in spite of everything they beheld, and in fact everything that they knew, in spite of all that, they continued to test God in so many ways and in, and in so many manners. So in verse number 10 it says this, Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So again, this would be the writer writing on behalf of the Holy Ghost, okay, from verse number 7. So here is what the, the Holy Ghost says of the children of Israel. He says, Wherefore I was grieved with that generation. As God looked at the children of Israel in the midst of that circumstance where they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, as they knew the blessings of God and they knew the goodness of God and they knew the miracles of God, as, as they beheld all of that, they continued to grieve, that generation did, the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost declared them that they do always err in their heart. What does it mean, that they always err? It means this, that they were constantly departing or straying from God, and in their hearts, as it says in verse number 10, they never really truly knew the way of God, the mind of God, or the will of God. Can you imagine for 40 years you're led by a cloud? You're led by a pillar of fire. You have seen the manna come from heaven. You have seen the quail come. You have seen the rock give forth water. You have seen everything that has happened. And yet in all of this, the testimony of the children of Israel was this, that though they had witnessed all of it, they never stayed on track. They never really knew the, the will of God and the ways of God and the direction of God. So in verse number 11 it says, So I swear in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. There was a consequence for their ways, was it not? There was a, there was a judgment, so to speak, for their lack of belief and their lack of, uh, of faith in God's ability to bring them to the promised land. And, and so this is what's being said of the children of Israel, again, on behalf of, of the Holy Ghost through the writer. And so it begs the question, how did this happen? How did this happen? How could the nation of Israel know everything they knew about God, see everything they saw as it related to God, witness everything they witnessed, and still constantly go astray and not know His ways. The answer is actually found back in verse number 8. 
when he said, Harden not your hearts. You know why that happened in the lives of Israel? Because their hearts were hardened to the God who was trying to lead them. Their hearts were hardened to the God that was trying to provide for them. Their heart was hardened to the one who was being so good to them. Here, here is God trying to, to do something great and wonderful on behalf of the children of Israel, and yet they are so hardened and they are so calloused to who God is and, and everything that He stands for and represents in His life that they always erred, they were constantly departing, and they never really knew the way and the will and the desire of God in their lives. How do you reach that point? How does that happen? How does that take place? How could testimony like how could such a testimony as this be given of the children of Israel? Here's what we'll see in a couple of moments. It was because of sin. The sin in their life caused them to be calloused to who God was. So though they are the recipients of the goodness of God and the grace of God and the miracles of God, they don't really know His way. And they're constantly erring. And they didn't get to enter into that land of rest that was available to them because of sin. Sin that they would never address and sin that they would never deal with. Now jump back to verse number 7. Because the writer is writing to Jews. You may remember we've said throughout this study that it jumps around sometimes to the believing Jews, sometimes to the unbelieving Jews. But in verse number 7 he says, Wherefore interrupts himself with the story of Israel. But notice in verse number 12 what he says. Take heed, brethren. Now the word brethren there is not a spiritual connection that, that he's trying to make like what we see in, in verse number 1 where he says, uh, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. This would be more of a, a, a national association, okay? This is one Jew writing to another Jew. So he says in verse number 7, wherefore, verse number 12, take heed, fellow Jews, my brethren. What does it mean to take heed? It means this, to give attention to something. You, my fellow Jews, need to take heed and give consideration to something. He says in verse number 12, Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. He's writing to Jews who did not experience the exodus out of Egypt and into the wilderness. But who is he writing to? He is writing to people who knew who Jehovah God was. He is writing to people who knew of the grace of God, who was, you know, at least acquainted with the mercy of God. He is, he is uh, writing to people who knew who God was. They were not ignorant of Him, but He says, Take heed, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. What is an evil heart? It's a wicked heart. It's an ungodly heart. It's an unrighteous heart. What kind of an evil heart? An evil heart of unbelief. What does that mean? It means this. No real belief, no real trust, or no real faith. 
my fellow Jews who know Jehovah God, take heed lest there be in any of you unbelief. It's not real. It's not genuine. And notice what he says, in departing from the living God. What does it mean to depart from the living God? It means this, to stray or to turn away from or to forsake. Here are men and here are women that he is writing to. They know who God is, but just because they know who God is, doesn't mean that their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is real. And as a result of that, what you witness in their life is a constant straying or a departing from the living God, just like what you saw in the children of Israel those 40 years, that generation that did not, uh, was not allowed to enter into that land of rest. You see what the writer is saying? My fellow countrymen who know God, you need to make sure that in your heart you do not just know who God is, but you need to make sure that you know God in a personal way, that your faith is real, that your faith is everything you suggest it is, that you pretend it is, and not departing or straying or forsaking the living God. If you'll put these pieces together, I think you'll see this. Here's what the writer is trying to to formulate in their mind. You need to make sure that your quote-unquote salvation is real. And that has much to do with, like your walk, with the living God. It's hard to believe that a faith is real if one is departing on a regular basis from the living God. It's hard to look at the nation of Israel as a whole during those 40 years of wandering and say, you know what, they had a real and, and legitimate and, and sincere relationship with God. I, I don't know how all that played out in eternity. I don't know how God is going to separate all that out. But, but I would say this, I think there were many Jews in the days of the wilderness, again, who knew who God was, but in their heart, they didn't care about God for a moment. They didn't care about God for a second. And any religious association they had was simply by association and so he says brethren take heed because what you do not want is in your own personal life for there to be an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God so notice what he says next in verse number 13 because I hope this will help clarify some of this he says but exhort one another daily while it is called today lest any of you be what Hardened. The very thing that the children of Israel struggled with and failed in was their hard hearts, right? So he said, you do not want to be hardened. You want to make sure that your faith is legitimate and that your faith is real, departing not from the living God. He said, lest any of you be hardened or calloused through what? Through the deceitfulness of sin.
What was Israel's problem? Israel's problem was this, their sin. But what caused them their problem? The, the, the problem with their sin as it related to their relationship with, with God was the deceitfulness of the sin in their life caused many of them to think everything's okay. Everything's fine. Everything's going to be good. So here's the writer and he is saying, listen, you know the story about the children of Israel. You know the story about how things went in the wilderness, constantly provoking the Lord, testing Him, tempting Him, proving Him. They, they knew the, the God of, 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 of heaven, but yet it wasn't real because they had hard hearts that were hardened because of their sin. Now, brethren, you don't want that to be true of you. You want to take heed. You want to give serious consideration to this. You want to give some serious attention to this. Lest there be found in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. What is he saying? He is saying this, my fellow brethren, my fellow Jews, you got to make sure that your faith is real. Because here is what sin has the ability to do. Sin has the ability to deceive you into thinking you're okay. Sin has the ability to make you think that everything's fine. Sin has the ability to callous you to God. Sin has the ability to blind your eyes to the reality of your sinful condition. And that's why he said in verse number 13, But exhort one another daily while it is called today. This is the day that you want to hear his voice. This is the day that you want to, to hear what he's trying to say to you. This is what you want to do. You want to exhort one another daily to deal with that deceptive sin in your life so that you're no longer calloused and hardened to the reality of your lost condition before God. I don't know about you, but I read that, I read the, the, that passage, and as my mind processes it as, as best I can, I think, my goodness... How scary. How scary. Well, why is that scary, Brother Kyle? Because of what I have said so many times before. In our country, in our region, in our little spot on the map, you know what so many people know about? They know about God. You understand this? So many people in our country, they know about God. So many people in our town, they know enough about God to, to have a general, vague conversation about God. Some go so far as to say they believe in God. Some go so far as to acknowledge the good things in their life to be from the hand of God. There are some who talk it up good and they talk it up as though it's real. But, but as you begin to watch them, here's what you cannot deny. That on a regular basis they depart from the living God that they claim to know. You just watch their pattern of life and they're not consistent in their walk. They're not consistent in their faith. They're not consistent in their testimony. They are constantly 
departing from the living God that they profess to have a personal relationship with. And you can't help but wonder how many people in this community who claim to know God if the truth were told they have an evil, wicked, ungodly, unrighteous heart of unbelief. It's not a true faith. It's not a sincere faith. It's, it's not a saving faith. It's not a faith that has truly been placed 100% into the hands of, uh, of Jesus Christ. That's not the kind of faith they have. No, they still very much have a faith in themselves. They still have a faith in their outlook and their thoughts and their opinions and their belief system. It's not truly a heart of faith. In Jesus Christ, and you see it over and over again, they don't live according to the truth of the Word of God. They don't live in, 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 in obedience. They are constantly erring. They don't know His way. They look just like the children of Israel, and yet you cannot tell them things are not okay. And you know why that's so? Because of the deception of sin. Sin has an amazing way of deceiving people. So you talk to that co-worker, and you can just tell by looking. You can just tell by observation. You can just tell. They don't know God. But you talk to them. And sin has so deceived them, they think they're okay. You've got that family member and, 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 and you care about them and you love them and you watch them though and they don't serve God. They don't honor God. And so if you do try to talk to them, what do they say to you? They say, hey, listen, I'm fine. I'm good. I believe in God. You don't have to worry about that. You know why they think they're okay? They think they're okay because of the deceitfulness of sin. And the longer they deceive themselves, you know what happens to their heart? The more hardened they become to their need of the Jesus Christ who can save them. They get hardened, they get calloused, and so they hear it here, they hear it here, they may hear it someplace else. But sin has so deceived them that they honestly, truly believe everything's good. Everything's fine. And you're just taking this way too serious or, or whatever their line may be. As that is so, as that is so, you know what I find of myself to be true? I find myself wondering. I'm not trying to be critical. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm not trying to be harsh. But I find myself wondering. What do you find yourself wondering, Brother Kyle? 
I find myself wondering the same thing that many, 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 many other pastors have wondered. How many of those who attend church on a regular basis have true faith? Or how many of them who come to church on a regular basis have become calloused and hardened to their need of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because of the deceitfulness or the deception of sin? Some of you have heard me talk about the preaching ministry of Adrian Rogers. If you were to list preachers in order of effectiveness, if you were to list preachers in order of uh, size of ministry and things that it appears as though God allowed them to accomplish, just from the human eye, I understand this, that it's just from the human eye, but Adrian Rogers would be way up here. God used him in an amazing way when Adrian Rogers was living. And the beautiful thing about Adrian Rogers is he stayed faithful to the end. His faith lasted him till his last breath. I watched a clip of his preaching a couple of weeks ago on YouTube. He's preaching to an auditorium that I, I think seated around 7,000. And he said, my fear of many in this church is that you have never truly repented of your sin. <laughs> Brother Rogers, what would make you wonder such a thing? What would make you think such a thing? Look at the lifestyle. Look at the lifestyle of how men and women live. Look at how they live their lives. They do constantly err. They do constantly go astray. It makes a preacher wonder. Preachers have said for years that they suspect that 50% or less of the congregations that they preach have truly ever been born again. Brother Mike and I were talking a couple of weeks ago and a preacher that he knows said that he was fearful that not 25% of the church that he pastored was truly born again. This evening, I'm not going to put a percentage on it. But I will say this, and thankfully by the grace of God, this sermon was prepared before I went to liberal Kansas, so... It is what it is. We can take it for however we want, like it or lump it. I don't know what else to say. But you know what my fear is? And you know what I cannot help but wonder? Is whenever I begin to behold the lifestyle of people sitting in our church, are they truly born again? Is it true, genuine belief in their heart? Because what you see is a regular, constant occurrence of departing from 
the God that they claim to serve. There's no faithfulness. There's no conviction. There's no change of lifestyle. We know much about God. But there's no change in who we are in our walk toward God. Again, I don't know what percentage I would put on that. But what would make me be so ignorant as to think all of us were truly saved when preachers who God has used in far greater ways have had the same concern and the same wonderings about the people they pastor? How many of these people are real versus how many people are just the tares among the wheat? Because Christ said himself that the tares are, are rampant among the wheat. known some in this community and some in this church for over 15 years. And to this day, if you said to me, Brother Kyle, what kind of changes have you seen in their spiritual life? You know what I have to say? I haven't seen any. Now, who do you think? I, 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 hold on. You're the one who asked me. I'm saying if you asked me, I'd have to say, I haven't seen any changes in some of these people's lives. They're still not faithful. They're still not involved. They still don't give. They, they never have a heart for the lost around them. I mean, you never hear them talk about it. You never hear them pray about it. You, I mean, you just, you just wonder, after all these years, how can you still be in this same spiritual condition and be a child of God? Makes you wonder. Something that one of the preachers mentioned yesterday. And you know that I don't promote this. You know that I don't push this. But it's just one of those things that a preacher can't help but notice in the back of his mind. How is it that we can go years without being at the altar? How can we go months? I mean... You're telling me with, with, with everything that is preached three times a week, four times, if you're in the Sunday school class, how can we be confronted with the Word of God that often and never have something within our heart that says, I need to take care of that and I need to take care of it now. And I want to kneel before God and humble myself before Him and say, God, I'm sorry. It's just something within the, the heart and mind of a preacher that says, I wonder what's going on. My concern is this. Is that sin has deceived people in our church. Sin has deceived people who were once a part of our church. And they think they're okay. They think they're good. It doesn't matter their lifestyle. They still think somehow everything's okay. They still think everything's fine. I just wonder, based upon the words of Scripture, how can I have confidence that everything is okay, that the Scripture says that, that sin is deceptive and it causes people to harden themselves to whom? To Jesus Christ. 
Can't help but wonder. I shouldn't have said anything, Brother Kyle. I'm sorry I did. Because silence on the issue isn't helping anything. still have our same vices. We still have our same cursings. We still have our same manner of life. Bless God, we come to church. Who cares? That is such a small aspect of the Christian life. And I, I, I wish, man, I wish we could all hear the sermon that Brother McCracken preached on bitterness. We've got bitterness in our heart, and we're going to hold on to that bitterness. And, and he talked about how we just, we just take it with us, and we drag it with us every place we go. Oh, but don't question whether or not I'm a child of God. With all that bitterness in your life, after all these years, sin is deceptive. Sin will deceive people into making them think everything's okay when in reality they have an evil heart of unbelief. And so you may sit here this evening and say, Brother Kyle, good grief, I can't believe you'd bring that to us. Don't you know we're the real ones? First of all, I suspect that most of us are saved. But I don't suspect for a moment that everyone who claims to be a child of God who is a member of our church is truly a child of God. I don't believe it for a minute. But if you would sit here this evening and you would say, Brother Kyle, I know without a doubt I am saved. Brother Kyle, there is no question in my heart and in my mind. Brother Kyle, I, I, that is so settled in my mind, you could not move me from that for one moment. Okay, that's between you and God, just like my relationship with the Lord is between He and I. But I would ask us to say this, if the Scripture says what it says and means what it means, then how many of us have a burden for the people who are deceiving themselves because of the sin in their life? He says in verse number 12, verse number 13 rather, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today. You know what we're supposed to be doing? We are supposed to be constantly encouraging and challenging and, and, and trying to provoke this thought of, Come on now, is it real? Is it, is it legitimate? Is it, is it sincere? We've got so many people sitting in churches who don't ever really give it consideration. Well, they said they're saved. I mean, what do you expect? Well, have you watched their lifestyle? I mean, have you watched the way they live away from church? Have you noticed that they don't really live what they amen at church? Have you noticed that they don't really live what they nod their heads to at church? Have you noticed that there's not a consistency? I mean, don't you think whenever you see someone who claims something but lives so opposite of it, don't you think we ought to have some kind of a burden for it? We don't so many times. I'm not upset. I'm not angry. I'm not trying to upset anyone. But here's a writer writing to fellow Jews, writing to his fellow countrymen, and he's saying, Brethren, take heed. 
give attention to this. You don't want to let the deception and the deceitfulness of sin harden your hearts to the point that while you know about God and while you think you know God, truth be told, you have an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. Is it real? What is the supporting evidence of my testimony? Well, I come to church. What's the supporting evidence of our testimony? What is the evidence that we could point to and say, that is evidence that over the years, the faith is real, the faith is genuine, the faith is, is, is what it's supposed to be. What, what's the evidence? There ought to be. There ought to be some kind of evidence. Let's all stand this evening and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. Lord, only you know the hearts of the men and women who are gathered here today.